please to Romans chapter 6, very familiar portion, very familiar text tonight, Romans chapter 6, verse 23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Warren Wearsby, a writer that perhaps some of you are familiar with. If you're not, you should get familiar with. And he says something about this scripture. I was reading this just before Christmas. And it really is thought-provoking, and it really certainly got my thoughts going. He said something about this verse. He said, only a comma separates a death sentence from a life sentence. The wages of sin is death, comma. That's the death sentence. But the gift of God is eternal life. That's the life sentence. That's a good thought, isn't it? Do you know I've read that scriptures a million times and that thought never came to me in that way. But it's a wonderful thought. The wages of sin is death. Only a comma separates the two. Now a comma, as you know, is a punctuation mark. It's a little punctuation mark. It's a pause in a sentence. It lets you breathe. If the sentence is long, it's punctuated by a comma to let you breathe. Just that little pause. So it's just a breath, if you will. And so that speaks to us wonderfully. Only a breath separates a death sentence from a life sentence. Only a breath separates us from heaven or from hell, from time or from eternity. Just a breath. When somebody breathes their last breath in this earth, their next breath will not be in time, it'll be in eternity. It'll either be in heaven or it'll be in hell. There's just that little pause. When an unbeliever dies, they pass from life unto death, eternal death. But when a believer dies, they pass from death unto life eternal. And there's just a pause between the two. Just a breath between us and all eternity that lies ahead. Everything a man or a woman has ever worked for or has lived for or has even died for will be irrevocable when they come to that pause, that comma, that breath in life that stops. There'll be no turning back. There'll be no changing. That's the comma in the sentence of their life. Every man and every woman will one day reach that last breath, that comma in their life. And at that point, it'll either be a life sentence or a death sentence. Big doors swing on small hinges. Why is this so? How is this so? Well, Paul alludes to it in his writings. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 22, as in Adam all die, comma. There's the death sentence. Even so in Christ, all shall be made alive. There's the life sentence. 
Romans 5.19 For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, comma, there's a death sentence. So by the obedience of one many shall be made righteous. There's the life sentence. All that the first Adam lost, the last Adam regained. 1 Corinthians 15, 21. For since by man came death, comma, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. Just a pause, just a breath, just a comma. What a gulf fixed between those two. Either life or death, heaven or hell, time or eternity. 1 Corinthians 15, 45 to 49. And so it is written, the first Adam became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first but the natural. And afterwards, the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, made of the dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As the man, as was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. Amen. Moses has gathered Israel together. He knows he's going to die. He knows he can't take them into the promised land. And this is the new generation. All the old unbelieving generation that came out of Egypt wandered for the 40 years have all died off in the wilderness. The new generation has grown up and now he has to preach the law to them. He has to give them the law the way he gave that first generation. And so in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy, as you probably know, is two words, Deuteros nomos, nomos is law, second law. Not that there was two laws. It's the first law reiterated. The first law read again to the new generation. And so he reads them the law again. But here's what he says in Deuteronomy 30, 19. I call heaven and earth to record against you this day that I have sent before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore choose life that both you and your house may live. Very stark choice, isn't it? And he's encouraging. He says, choose life. Whatever you do, choose life. Moses was a saying in effect to them, you have a choice. You can choose a life sentence. In effect, if you don't, you've already made a choice. That will be the death sentence. So he says, choose life. Whatever you do, choose life that both you and your house may live. Is it going to be a life sentence or a death sentence? New Testament puts it a little bit different, but it's still a stark, isn't it? Jesus said, the thief does not come except to steal and kill and destroy. That's a death sentence, isn't it? But I have come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. Jesus comes with a life sentence for us. And those of us who've received his life in us 
We're thankful for it, aren't we? Satan is a life taker. Jesus is a life giver. In Joshua chapter 24, we were in Joshua this morning, but an entirely different thing we were looking at. Joshua chapter 24. And here is Joshua. And he knows that his time has come. And again, he wants to encourage his people. He wants them to live right. He wants them to make the right choices. He wants them to follow the Lord wholeheartedly. In verse 13, he says, I have given you a land for which you did not labor, and cities for which you did not build, and you dwell in them. You eat the vineyards and the olive groves which you did not plant. Now therefore hear, sorry, now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in truth. And put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the river and in Egypt. Serve the Lord. And if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house... We will serve the Lord. And so he's saying to choose right and to choose well and to stick with it. Make up your mind. Make the decision right and do it. So the people answered and said, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For the Lord our God is he who brought us us and our fathers out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went and among all the people through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the people, including the Amorites who dwell in the land. We also serve the Lord, for he is our God. But Joshua said to the people, you cannot serve the Lord, for he is a holy God and he is a jealous God. Why did he say that you cannot serve the Lord? Well, let's read on. He will not forsake, sorry, he will not forgive your transgressions nor your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after he has done you good. And the people said to Joshua, no, but we will serve the Lord. So Joshua said to the people, you are witnesses against you, against yourselves, that you have chosen the Lord for yourselves to serve him. And they said, we are Witnesses. Now note this. Now therefore he said, put away the foreign gods which are among you and incline your heart to the Lord God of Israel. Ah. With all of their talk, they still had those foreign gods in their midst. And Joshua said, now Joshua knows he's about to depart. And he said, listen, make up your mind once and for all Serve the Lord. But to serve the Lord, you have to put away all these foreign gods. You can't have two masters. Isn't that biblical teaching? You can't have two masters. You have to serve the Lord, and him only shall you serve. So he said, even though you're saying this, and even though you're saying we will serve the Lord, even though you're saying we will follow, he says, the only way you're going to do this is if you put those foreign gods away because if you don't, they will draw you back into idolatry. So get rid of them. Get them out of the land. That's what he's saying. 
And so here we have choices to make, decisions to make. We have to consciously, deliberately choose life. The world chooses death. They don't know they're doing it very often. They're not always conscious they're doing it. In fact, they think they're choosing the things that's going to bring them life. But often, it just brings them death. That's why Proverbs says there's a way that seems right unto a man, but in the end, what happens? It brings forth death. We need to make the right choices. We need to choose right. There's a lot of talk today, and has been for a while, about generational curses. Now, can I tell you where I stand on that? You may have a different opinion than me, but can I tell you where I stand on that? I have searched the New Testament. I can't find it. It's not in there. If you look up the word in your concordance, do it when you go home. Curse, <coughs> cursing, curseth. Look up all those words. You'll find maybe 8, 9, 10. Some of them speaking about the same thing. You will not find one single reference to generational curses. It's not there. When I came to Christ, my past was past. It was dealt with. If the cross didn't deal with it, I'm in trouble. If the blood wasn't enough, I'm in big trouble. But it was. I like what one preacher in England says. He says, there's generational choices, not curses. People make choices. <coughs> Families make choices. But this business of having to break generational curses, I just cannot find it. I can't see it. If you can see it, you're better than I am because I can't find it. And it'll drive you nuts. You'll be, everything that's wrong with you will be looking for some generational curse. It's not there. It's dealt with at Calvary. It's gone forever. My past is gone. Cleansed, clean, finished, over. Let's magnify the cross, Christians. Let's not say, well, I've come to the cross and the blood works and the cross works, but there's still something I have to deal with that the cross didn't deal with, the blood didn't deal with. What are we talking about here? No, I made a choice. It was very clear. It was very stark. You either choose life or you choose death. And by the, by the pulling of the Holy Spirit, by the wooing of the Holy Spirit, I came to the place in my life where I made that choice, a clear-cut choice. I chose life. And my life has never been the same again. Now, there may be physical things within our genes that's carried down, but that's nothing to do with generational curses. You're talking Old Testament there. This is a new covenant. This is a new deal we've got. Far, far better, let me tell you. So how do we choose life? If we have chosen Christ, we have chosen life. <coughs> Listen to what the scriptures say. In him was life, and the life was the light of man. John 1.4 In him was life. Did you choose him? You've chosen life. You've got it. You've got it in him. First John 5, 11 and 12, 
And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. And then here's the clincher. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son has not life. (laughs) That's pretty clear cut, isn't it? I mean, there's no gray area there. You can't fudge that. You either have life in Christ or you don't have life. Oh, you have physical life, but you don't have spiritual life. You don't have eternal life. But if you're in Christ, you have eternal life. You have the life of God actually in you. In fact, the margin says, the life. He who has the Son has the life. This is not just any life. This is the life. This is supernatural life. This is the life of God imparted to us. How does Christ impart his life to us? By his Holy Spirit. That's how he does it. Now the Holy Spirit is not some kind of impersonal force. It's not an it. It's not a thing. It's not something nebulous. It's not some kind of a gas or ether out there. The Holy Spirit is a person. He has personality. He is the third person in the divine Godhead, co-equal with the Father, co-equal with the Son. Amen? Simple and yet profound. Who can fully explain that? Never in a million years can you explain it, but we receive that by faith. But he is, and he can be vexed, and he can be grieved, and he speaks, and he hears, and he guides, and he directs, because he's a person. In John's Gospel, when Jesus spoke of the Holy Spirit, over ten times he used personal pronouns. He, him, himself, not it, not a thing. Now, it's hard for us in our logical peanut brains, isn't it? It's hard for us when we can't see the Holy Spirit. We, we can kind of try to imagine what Jesus must have looked like when he was on earth. The Bible never left any record of what he actually looked like. There's no, nothing for us to go on. But we, we know he was a man. So we know he had a physical frame. But how do you, how do you figure the Holy Spirit? Especially the old King James, the Holy Ghost. And so sometimes our minds get a little bit muddled. And we kind of step over from, well, we know that Jesus was a person. He was in a human body and still has got that human body with the nail scars. But how do you figure out the Holy Spirit? Even though he is spirit, but yet he's a person. He's got personality. And he can speak and he can see and he can hear. And he can be angry and grieved and hurt. The Holy Spirit is very powerfully active, very powerfully involved in the new creation. What does it say in John chapter 3? Again, this is all fairly familiar to you, I'm sure, but church tonight, there's people at different levels, isn't there? Some are babes in Christ. Some of us have been around a long time. 
chapter 3 of John's Gospel, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no man can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Excuse me. So he's thinking natural terms, isn't he? Jesus answered, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. And so Jesus likens the actions of the Spirit, in this instance, to wind that we cannot see, but we can feel. And even though we cannot see the Holy Spirit, but we can feel Him actively working in our lives. At the moment when you became born again, it was the Holy Spirit who was actively involved in that wonderful transaction causing you to have new life in Christ. And from that moment on, he's been with you. He's been in you, the Holy Spirit. He was the agent of the new birth. This is why it says in Romans 8, 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the sons of God. How do we know that we're saved? We know because by faith we acted upon what the Word of God says. But what was the assurance after that? The Holy Spirit witnessed with our spirit. We knew. We just knew. And that is the work of the Holy Spirit, giving you the assurance that you're born again from above. 1 John 4, 13, By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. 1 John 5 and 10. He who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. What is the witness? The witness is the Holy Spirit. You see, without the Holy Spirit, we never could have grasped this wonderful truth that we are born again from above. Never would have registered with us. I'm not talking about our minds. I'm talking about our spirit, our heart. But the Holy Spirit witnessed, registered, gave us the assurance. Again, this is why Paul says in Galatians 4 and 6, And because you're sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Jews certainly believed that God was the father of the nation. All the disciples believed that. But when Jesus prayed, 
intimately, personally to his father, the disciples saw something different than any prayers they'd ever heard before or anything they'd ever seen anybody praying before. There was something different. They said, Lord, teach us to pray. We have the wonderful privilege, and this is through the work of the Holy Spirit, that Almighty God is our Father. He's not just this great being in the sky. He's not the man upstairs. He's our Heavenly Father. He loves us. And it's the Holy Spirit, it's His work in us that makes that real for us. Otherwise, it wouldn't be real. We wouldn't think of God as Father. It's when you become born again that suddenly you begin to see God as Father. Now Christ is the one who baptizes us in the Holy Spirit. John the Baptist says when he comes, he will baptize you in the Holy Ghost and fire. But it's the Holy Spirit who baptizes you into the body of Christ. This is a mystical, supernatural thing. At that moment you're born again, you become part of the body of Christ on earth. And it's the Holy Spirit who does that. That's his work to do that. And only he can do that. And then he witnesses to you that the job is done, that he has done that. You remember when you got saved, suddenly you realized you're part of the great family of God. There's Helen sitting there just, what, a couple of months ago, gave her heart to the Lord. And life has totally changed, hasn't it? This is, she told me then, it has been a wonderful year. And she has no doubt whatsoever that God is her Father. And that's the work of the Holy Spirit, making that assurance in her heart and in her life. And that's what God does. God the Holy Spirit. And so this is a supernatural work of the Spirit that takes us from darkness to light, from death to life, from sin to righteousness, from the kingdom of this world into the kingdom of God. And it's the same Holy Spirit who was so active in creation way back in Genesis 1. It's the same Holy Spirit that's so active in the new creation. He's the one who brings it about. Glory to God. He is the one who, out of the chaos of our lives, he is the one who brought life and structure and order and purpose. He's the one who did all of that. He's the one who gives us the revelation of who God is and what he's doing in this earth. The Holy Spirit is the one who reveals in John chapter 16. This is what Jesus tells us. Well, let's read from verse 5. But now I go away to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper... The advocate, the paraclete, the one who's called alongside to help, that means, if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, 
I will send him to you. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment, of sin because they do not believe in me, of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more, of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. And that's a whole sermon in itself. I have still many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. However, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will tell you things to come. He will glorify me. The main purpose of the Holy Spirit on earth is to what? Is to glorify Jesus. That's the purpose, the main purpose of the Holy Spirit. And every one of our lives is to lift up Jesus and to glorify him. That's what he's come to earth. That's why he's in us. That's why we're baptized in the Holy Ghost, that we may be those witnesses for Christ. That's what it's about. And so he says, He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore I said that he will take of mine, and he will declare it unto you. And then in chapter 14, just a little bit back there, Verse 15, if you love me, keep my commandments and I will pray the Father and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him or knows him. But you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. This is a wonderful, wonderful truth. The work of the Holy Spirit in our lives is a wonderful thing. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit is mentioned more than 90 times. He's given 18 different titles. In the New Testament, he's mentioned 260 times and he's given 30 different names and titles. Never diminish or underestimate or sideline the Holy Spirit. He's the third person of the divine trinity. There's only two books in the whole of the New Testament where there's no reference to the Holy Spirit. Second and third John, those tiny little epistles. It's the only two. The rest he's mentioned. So how does Christ impart his life to us? By the Holy Spirit and by his word. And we'll be close in a moment. I promise you Sunday nights have been very good, haven't they? Don't get too used to it because I might lapse from time to time. By his word, 1 Peter 2.2. As newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. From the moment I became born again, God put in my heart a hunger, a desire, a love for this word. It consumed me. I had no idea I would ever be a pastor. I had no idea I would ever be a preacher. That was not even on my radar. It wasn't even a thought in my brain. 
but the word of God consumed me. I've told you before, at the end of my shift, when I worked in Michelin Tire Factory, at the end of my shift, just before you clocked out, you had maybe 10 or 15 minutes just to wash up and just gather around waiting for the clock to go. And I'd go into one of the cubicles and take out my wee New Testament and I would sit there. And sometimes it was half an hour later before I realized. And my lift was waiting down at the gate for me, wondering where I had been. I'd been in the toilet sitting reading the Bible. <laughs> and it so consumed me that I totally forgot about time. And, and we thoughts were coming to me and we words were coming. I had no idea. I was writing things down the flight. I had no idea that someday I would even use some of those things. That wasn't the point. It was the word of God. And here, after all those years, it still consumes me. Sally could tell you I spend more time, don't I? I'm hardly, sometimes she's like a grass widow sitting in there. I live in one room, she lives in another room. That's a bad confession. Maybe that's the secret of a long and happy marriage, by the way, isn't it? Eh? <laughs> Maybe that's why we're married 46 years. Still in love. Because <laughs> sometimes I just forget about time. And you get into the Word of God. And you love it. And it just, it just does something to you. And in Hebrews chapter 5, the writer of the Hebrews, he, he talks about those who need to get off the milk of the word and get onto the meat of the word. Now, again, if I can refer to Helen, Helen's just a babe in Christ. She's on the milk of the word. She's just trying to understand everything there is to understand. <laughs> so don't take too many big bites at once, Helen. Just, all right, don't jump into the book of Revelation just right quite now, you know what I mean? When you just save the tendency to do those things. So just you take it easy. It's the milk of the word. Just like a baby. There's Hannah's got her wee baby there tonight. Beautiful wee Emily, Sarah. And she can only take milk. I mean, she couldn't stick a big chip in her mouth. Sure she couldn't. I mean, choke the wee thing. She has to take milk until she grows a bit. Give her a wee bit of time later and she'll be looking more than just milk, you know. She'll be off the milk and she'll be starting on the solid food. She'll be in those wee jars you get in Tesco, you know. And then later on, it'll be fish supper or something like that. <laughs> and some of us need to get off the milk and onto the meat. Been on the milk too long. We're past the baby stage. We need to be fully grown and get into the Word. There is tons, tons and tons of ways to help you understand the Word of God. Not just coming to hear the Word of God taught in the church through the different Preachers and teachers in here, you have to get in somehow to yourself. Find a way to get to understand God's word. Jeremiah 15 and 16 says, Your words were found and I did eat them, and your word was unto me the joy and the rejoicing of my heart. <laughs> this book is literally inexhaustible. Think of all the preachers today, all over the world. Hundreds of thousands, at least all over the world. And they're all preaching and teaching from this one book. It's inexhaustible. It's a gold mine. I know sometimes when you're preparing sermons for Sunday, it doesn't seem inexhaustible. You're exhausted trying to get something out of it sometimes. Isn't that right, Jimmy? 
<laughs> Unless you're preaching, you don't know that. Sure you don't. You know, us fellas get up here on Sundays and you think it's dead easy, don't you? Because you make it look easy. You think, oh, that's easy. Anybody could do that. But it's not so easy. When you're in your room all week and you're trying to get inspiration, the Holy Spirit to help you and all the rest of it, to put it all together, but you love it because it feeds your soul before it feeds you. It's got to feed us before we can feed you. We need to feed ourselves. Psalm 119, that wonderful chapter, verse 105. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Verse 18. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things from your law. There's a good verse to say to yourself when you open the word of God. Lord, open my eyes. I want to see good things from your word. And the Holy Spirit will show you good things from the word of God because he's the author. He's the inspirer of God's word. So he will show you. He will teach you things to come, Jesus said. Verse 50, this is my comfort in my affliction for your word has given me life. Have you ever gone through a difficult situation and the Holy Spirit just drops a promise into your heart? A word, a word just rises up in your spirit, the word of God. Increasingly, it's happened to me twice just within this past few weeks. One I told you about, one I didn't tell you about. Go to bed, midnight, can't sleep for the life of me. A scripture comes to my head. The other week I preached on that, on Shibboleth. Remember that? Well, I went to bed at 12 o'clock and that came into my brain. Could I get it out of it? I knew it was in the book of Judges, but I couldn't have told you what chapter it was because I hadn't read it in a long time. Four o'clock in the morning, I thought, to pop with this, I am going to have to get up. And I got up and I got my Bible out and I hunted for it till I got it. And the next 30 minutes, that message I preached on, that's where that came from. Now, I wish God would do that all the time. It would save me a ton of work, wouldn't it? But he doesn't always do that. Sometimes he does that because somebody really needs to hear what the Spirit is saying. But this is the exciting thing about the Word of God. Verse 130. The entrance of your words give light. Samma said in 133, direct my steps according to your word. Verse 165. Great peace have they that love thy law and nothing shall offend them. You know, I've discovered that Christians are the most easily offended people on God's earth. And they shouldn't be. They shouldn't be. If we are saturated with the word of God, it will not be so easy to offend us and stumble us because we can turn to the word of God. Jesus was filled with the word. He was the word and he was filled with the word. Even on the cross, even at the most dire moments of his life, he quoted the way back from Deuteronomy. He quoted the word. He was filled with it. So no matter what was thrown at him, he was full of the word. Did I tell you the title of the message tonight? It was the grammar of the gospel. The grammar of the gospel. 
The wages of sin is death, comma, but the gift of God is eternal life. Aren't you glad for the gift of God tonight? Aren't you glad you received by faith the gift of God and you've got eternal life? Glory to God. That's more than duration of life. That's a quality of life. That's the life of God in you. Yes, it'll take you through eternity, but it's something different. It's the life that's in him. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you in this first Sunday of this new year that we are looking ahead, as we said this morning and as was shown to us. We, we are looking ahead, Lord, at all that you've got in store by your Spirit and by your Word. We thank you, Lord, for new, open, and effectual doors. Help us, Lord, to go through them. Lord, help us to see wonderful breakthroughs in every area of our lives, in our church, in our nation, our community. Lord, we may see your hand outstretched and your spirit poured out. So we give you thanks for this. We bless you and we thank you for the preciousness of your word. It's a living word. Lord, it cuts right to the very quick of our hearts. Thank you for it, Lord. Help us, Lord, to build ourselves up in our most holy faith. Lord, that we may be ready in these last days that we live in, Lord, to behandle everything that comes our way by your word and by your spirit. We ask these things, believing and trusting in you, in Jesus' name. And all God's people say it. Amen. Amen.